So a few years back, my family and I went to Branson, Missouri. Has anybody been to Branson, Missouri? Raise your hand if you've been to Branson, Missouri. So Branson, Missouri is a very different sort of place. It's kind of like a a Christian Southern uh, Las Vegas of sorts. Some would call it a a bit rednecky. If if you love go-karts and putt-putt and Dolly Parton and old-timey humor uh, and the Bible, it may just be heaven for you. And in Branson, there's a world-famous theme park called Silver Dollar City. And Silver Dollar City is this huge sprawling theme park. They have everything at Silver Dollar City. They have turkey legs. They have funnel cake. They got uh, acapella groups and and guys making swords and hammer. It's a weird place, Uh, but they also have roller coasters. And so they have all sorts of kind of famous roller coasters. They have the last roller coaster that I ever went on, which was the powder keg. And I went on that a few years ago and I'm getting older. I'm I'm 40 now. And uh, I went about three to four years ago and I, it was the, it was the first time I ever got sick on a roller coaster. There's just all these turns and just getting pushed. And I'm just kind of like, I think I'm at the age where I'm done needing to do this. I'm not scared of them, but it's just not a pleasant experience to go. And now they have a roller coaster called uh, the, I think it's Wildfire. Wildfire. Tanya, do you know what Wildfire is? I do, and I haven't ridden it yet. She's had, Tanya, if you don't know, is our coaster enthusiast, (laughs) our resident coaster enthusiast at Central Bible Church. Her official position is is if you want to know about roller coasters, Tanya will help you out, um, which doesn't really help in a church much. Uh, But they had a place called uh, Wildfire and had a vertical drop of 15 stories, five inversions, including a full loop, cobra roll, corkscrew, and a high-speed spiral. I don't know what half of those things are. And some of you are like, man, yeah, that sounds awesome. I'm like, no. It doesn't sound good. That sounds like a terrible day. Being turned upside down that many times at that speed would not be a pleasant experience for myself. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is continually turning things upside down. And the Pharisees don't find it particularly a pleasant experience. So Jesus comes in and he teaches in a way that challenges and turns upside down their very notion of who God is and what it looks like to live in light of that God. He continually inverts their understanding of reality and they push back consistently. It's not a ride they want to go on. And a few weeks ago, we talked about money. And we talked about investing in eternal matters. And I'm sorry, guys, we're going to talk about money again, not because I like talking about money. This will be the second time in our over-year existence that we've talked about money. So if you're new here, we don't talk about this every week. i got to always preface it with that. Uh, I'm not that guy. I'm not that dude. Uh, But Jesus talks about money quite a bit. So if you don't want to talk about money, don't open the Bible. uh, Because Jesus talks about it quite a bit. And he talks about it even within these these parables. And, And he's just told us a parable about money. And a short time later, he tells us a very similar parable. But he does it in a way that, again subverts his audiences and our expectations as to how to view and value wealth. And we're going to read a very weird parable today. I'm going to warn you, this is a weird parable. There's, there's heaven, there's hell, there's dogs, there's uh, sores on... Per- I mean, it's just, it's just a weird parable uh, that Jesus kind of inserts here in Luke 16. So turn to Luke 16. 
Turn to Luke 16. If you don't have a Bible, there are blue Bibles back there that have our translation. If you don't have a physical Bible, that is our gift to you. Take that home. Keep it. It is yours. Uh, We read from the ESV. Nothing special about it. It's just the transition we chose to read from. And Jesus has been, so far, challenging the Pharisees' view of wealth and righteousness. And he's just told a story in the first half of chapter 16 about an unjust steward. And he tells them how they handle their wealth, Pharisees, now has eternal consequences. And he says the framest phase, you cannot serve both God and money, which hits hard in a place like Castle Rock, where people tend to worship wealth and success and status. And Jesus says you can't serve both. And look at verse 16, chapter 16, verse 14. Look at verse 14, and this kind of set up what we're reading today. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So that's the context. Jesus has challenged their view of wealth and they have now pushed back. Hey, that's not a ride I want to go on. That that goes against what I know about God. That goes against what I believe. Jesus subverts it. Let's look at how he does it. Go to verse 19. Go to verse 19. There is a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So we have two men Two very different lots in life. One is a rich man, and he's clothed in what? Purple. Purple is a royal color. So if you were uh, of certain lineage or you were important, royal was the color, or uh, purple was the color of royal splendor. He wore the finest linens. He's not wearing stuff from TJ Maxx or Kohl's. I wear stuff from TJ Maxx or Kohl's, but he is Gucci everything uh, from head to toe. He is wearing the most expensive clothing in the known world. And he dresses nice and he eats well. Now, now feasting, when we think of feasting, think of like wedding. Think of like all you can eat sort of situation. He was doing this every day, every meal. So the picture is, is just, he's just a dude who just consistently eats. Now, some of you have had a Saturday or Sunday like that before, uh, but he was doing it every day, every night when he was awake, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, full plate. Uh, chowing down, probably a lot of food being thrown out, a lot of leftovers. And and this wasn't just Golden Corral. I'm not talking about C-minus sort of food. I'm okay with C-minus food. It's passing. It will pass. Uh, But this is the finest of cuisines that he's eating. And so this is a rich man with a lot. But it also says he's behind a gate. And, And what a picture of this man's life, a gate. There's a gate. Now, a gate is a status of wealth, right? Wealthy people live behind gates. Man, check out that gate. When your car pulls up, it motions over. There's somebody that asks if they know you, then you're kind of let in. And so it's a picture of wealth. It's also a picture of of distance. I want to keep the riffraff out. I want to keep the bad people out. And so there's this man of, of luxury, wealth, 
opulence, self-indulgence. And on the other side of this gate is a man, another man named Lazarus. Now, Jesus usually doesn't name people in his parables, and we'll talk about that, but this man is also covered, but he's covered in scars. And while the rich man indulges his every desire, Lazarus simply wants to eat out of his garbage can. Man, if I could just get a little bit of that food, if I could just get the leftovers, I see them just getting dumped, and if I just could have a, just a taste of that, I don't need to be overindulgent, I just need to be fed. I don't even have enough energy to, to push off these dogs who are coming to, to lick my sores. Now guys, these weren't corgi puppies, which corgi puppies are scientifically proven to be the cutest type of puppies there is. Uh, and so this is, these are wild dogs. These are packs of dogs. These are street dogs. You often see in third world countries where you're like, I'm not going to pet that. These are those kind of dogs that are licking his swords. He doesn't have the energy to, to push them off. And so we have two men, two totally different lots in life. One lives in, in opulent self-indulgence behind a gate. Another lives in filth wasting away. One has everything. The other has absolutely nothing. Look at verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So already Jesus begins to turn things upside down. On, on this side of death, Lazarus receives no funeral. We're not even told his body is buried. On this side, you can just imagine the rich man's funeral. You know, $50 a plate. Uh, it's, it's opulent. It's gaudy. It, it's just a, a waste of money. It, it's showy. It's flashy. But, but on this side of heaven... We see a Lazarus who was never invited to an earthly feast now being carried by the angels to a place of honor next to Abraham. So the picture is, is now Lazarus is at a table with Abraham feasting at his side. And so we would call this maybe the good place, or heaven, something along those lines. And the rich man finds himself in, in Hades. And the parable's imagery of Hades is found in Jewish literature that describes the afterlife for the wicked. We see things like flames, thirst, and, and, and torment. And so before we get into kind of the theological understanding of all this, I told you it'd get a bit weird this morning. Just look at the great reversal that has happened. Look at the great reversal that Jesus is describing Lazarus, once lying sick on the ground, used to have to look up while the rich man passed him by, going through his gate to feast. Now the rich man must look up to see Ab Abraham and Lazarus feasting together. And now he's left out. Some believe this passage is actual history and, and not a parable. Like this, there was really a man named Lazarus it was really a rich man, and this describes what happened in the afterlife. Now, this could be real. This could be real, but, but I'm not sure. 
how much we want to actually press this passage for our theological understanding of, of heaven and hell. hell. I mean, I do believe that there will be like an unbridgeable gap that we won't be able to cross. I think once there's judgment, then it's kind of done and we'll be conscious of of where we're at. I do believe that, but I really don't believe in the next life we'll be able to talk to people on the other side. Like, I don't think we'll be like, hey, Gary, it's another hot day over there, I see, you know. Uh, I I see you're getting tortured again, man. Just, you know, I hope you get through it. I'm gonna get back to the pool of of Jell-O because it's heaven. Um, You you know, like, I don't think you'll be able to communicate with the other side. And so again, I don't know how far we're, we're to push this. I don't know if that's Jesus's primary point here is to give us an exact picture of what heaven and hell and the afterlife will specifically look like. I think the main thrust of this parable is to confront and overturn a belief about wealth that was popular then just as it is popular today. So there's a, there's a belief about wealth that the Pharisees believe, that, that we often believe, all over the world today. And it was believed then by the Pharisees, as it's often believed now, that wealth was a sure sign of God's favor. Many in Jesus' day and today believe that riches are, are a stamp of approval for a righteous life. Man, you've done well. Man, you have obeyed. You've been good. You've been faithful. I'm going to give you a lot. But if you're lazy or faithless, which was how the Pharisees would have looked at somebody like Lazarus, well, then you're going to be given very little. It's all a sign of his disfavor. So if you're going to write something down, write, write this down this morning. The presence of wealth is not a sign of God's favor. This is called the prosperity gospel. It's the idea that if you believe enough, you say the right prayers, you do the right things, you ask correctly and you have faith, God will give you what you desire and he wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. That gospel is cruel. It is a very cruel gospel. It implies that if you're going through hardship, disease, or failure, it's because you do not have enough faith. That is cruel. And it's also cruel because this gospel takes root with the poor, with the destitute, with those who aren't wealthy, and it promises things that ultimately aren't delivered. And it's this gospel that if we come back to, it continually pushes a a draining struggle for, for a life and possessions we can't afford because we want to show people that we're blessed by God. It just equals burnout and struggle in anger, because guess what? On this side of heaven, there will be pain. There will be loss. You can lose everything like, like that. I mean, some of you have you bought homes, sold homes. You've known what it's like for your home to drop in value and go, what are we going to do? Some of you have had major accidents, major, major medical emergencies, and that, that savings account has, has been drained. It's not because you're faithless. 
It's because through suffering, God purifies our hearts to love him more. And so, so, so if you don't drive a Jaguar, if you don't drive a Benz, if your car has no AC, like the AC stopped working years ago, if, if, if you have a tape player in your car <laughs> still, and your kids go, what's that? I had my son ask me the other day, what is that for? Well, there used to be this thing, it's too confusing, son. It's too hard to explain. Guys, if that's you, if you're making rent and that's it, guys, you're not in bad company. You're not in bad company. Jesus was born poor. Jesus was poor. It's not a sign of of his favor if you have wealth. Wealth can be a good thing. It, It can be a blessing. It can be something that he gives us as a gift, but lacking it doesn't mean that God disapproves of you. Lacking it doesn't mean that God disapproves of you. The presence of wealth is not a sign of God's favor. Here's what you write after that. But how we use it is. But how we use it is. Look at verse 23. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here. And you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us, you are, and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. And none may, be, may cross from here, from there to us. So the question I have when I read this passage is, why are these men where they're at? Like, why, what? It doesn't really tell us, but why is, why is Lazarus in, in the good place? And, heaven and, and why is the rich man in Hades or hell like why are they where where they're at why is their fate sealed in, in this way well if we look at the name Lazarus it's most likely a Hellenized version a shortened Hellenized version of Eleazar which which means God helps and so the text doesn't say this but it implies this and that Lazarus's deep physical need made him much more sensitive and susceptible to understanding his spiritual need, which is truly how God wants us to come before him. Not all proud, not puffed up. See guys at the gym all the time, just walking around like this. God God doesn't like that. God wants us to come to him saying, man, I, I need you. I've fallen short. I am destitute. There's no good work. There's, there's, there's no success that I could achieve. There's no amount of wealth that I could buy my way into your presence, your favor, your love. I need the work of Jesus Christ. I need you to do something for me so that I could be saved. That's the beginning of understanding the gospel. And the idea here is Lazarus had some sense like that. Well, why is the rich man in Hades? Now, there's something to note here. The rich man knows Lazarus. He calls him out by name, which keys us into something. He condemns himself when he does this. He says, hey, Lazarus, 
He knows who Lazarus is. He recognizes him from his former life, which means that he knew the name of the man who sat at his gate, which also means that he knew that this man was destitute, broken, and in need, which means that he chose to daily ignore this man's needs. He chose to daily walk by Lazarus, go into his home, eat till his heart's content, and then not help the neighbor who was suffering right outside. He's not there because he's wealthy. In fact, Abraham, who's with Lazarus, was most likely wealthy. He was a rich man. He's not there because he's wealthy. He's there because he used his wealth in a way that showed he didn't love and cherish God. And that lack of love has an eternal consequence. Jesus said two chapters ago, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. There's a correlation to how we use and view our money here to where we'll end up. And you may be like, okay, so you're saying that I have to give money to be saved. You're saying I gotta give money to be saved. Here's here's what I'm saying. A heart unwilling to help others because It might be risky or they may not deserve it or it may cost too much. Is a heart unwilling to recognize our desperate need for God and salvation and on a daily basis. We cannot hope for pardon at the end unless the fruits of pardon have been seen in us. So if the gospel of grace and generosity isn't apparent in your life, The question I would have is, has that gospel of salvation and grace really taken root? Is your faith in Jesus cultural head knowledge or is it something you truly believe and understand how gracious our God has been with us? And if you understand what Christ has done for us, what the Father has done for us through sending his Son for our sins, how little we've accomplished on our own merits. That gospel would surely move your heart to reflect the generosity of a father who has given you everything of value. For the rich man, his faith was lip service. He said things like, you know, Father Abraham, but he doesn't even address Lazarus here. We never see him repent, number one. We're not seeing him in Hades being like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done this. We we don't see that. We don't see him even treat Lazarus like, like a human being here. He doesn't address Lazarus. Who does he talk to? He talks to Abraham. And he goes, hey, Abraham, can you send Lazarus to, to come wet my tongue? He's treating Lazarus like a servant still, like his help. And he's asking him, to do the very thing that he was unwilling to do while he was alive. To fill his stomach, to quench his thirst. 
And this is where we get that idea of reci reciprocity. I don't know if that's the correct way to say that. Uh, is that right, Tanya? You're also a teacher. We'll, we'll just take it. Um, what we do is, and how we treat others, how we forgive, and how we show mercy is a sign of what, what God has done for us. And if we're not doing that, God will treat us the same way. We see that all throughout Scripture. He doesn't repent. There's no asking for forgiveness. There's a hard heart. And he's still treating Lazarus like a servant. And his lack of mercy finds its echo in mercy not received. The presence of wealth is not a sign you are saved. How you use it is. So start using your, your resources, your income, your means to, to glorify God. And this next passage is kind of to imply while you still can. While you still can. Look at 27. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. I want to feel for the rich man here. He pleads for his family. And you're maybe like, maybe he gets it. But if you really look at it, he pleaded for himself first. Again, there's no repentance. And he's still speaking like, to Lazarus like he's his servant. Hey, can you go send the help to warn my brothers so that they don't end up here? Nonetheless, I'll give him some credit. He doesn't want his brothers to suffer. Look at verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Abraham responds, scripture is sufficient to save them. And the rich man says, well, not really. Can you do something extra? You know, I know, I know God's words like the meat, but can you put some extra seasoning on it? Some, can, you, can you make the plate look good? And like, can, can you spruce it up a little bit? Because, because that's not going to be enough. God's, God's word's not going to be enough. We, we got we to gotta add a little bit to it, which is a very, very popular belief that's shared in Christianity today. Man, you know, preaching God's word is, is just boring to our culture. It's not enough to change lives anymore. So we need very good music. We, we need uh, an atmosphere that is beautiful. You know, we need to put our best foot forward, the best coffee, because people are going to walk away from Jesus if we serve Folgers, for goodness sake. And we, we got to do all the best things. We got to impress people. And the speaker needs to be funny, good looking and charismatic. And while I'm two out of three there. <laughs> The idea behind that is, is in God's word, this isn't enough for us. And Abraham says, man, I, I could do the, the greatest miracle for them. It wouldn't change their heart. Because you know why? Because they probably love money too. This, this right here is what changes people's life. This right here is what saves people. Now, some of us are like, God, God, speak to me. God, 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 talk to me. Guys, he has. And the greatest miracle, his death and resurrection has already occurred. Do you, do you need him to do it again for you? Guys, we have everything we have right here. 
everything we need to be generous. That's what Abraham's saying, man. Your brothers have, and again, this wasn't written at that point, but they had the Old Testament. They had the Torah. They had Moses and the prophets. And all throughout Moses and the prophets, man, there was enough information there to save someone at that point. It pointed to a Messiah. It pointed to their need for for repentance and their need for forgiveness and grace and mercy. Now it turned into legalism, but that wasn't God's intent. That was a system put in place that was temporary, that meant to point people to a greater sacrifice. All throughout the Old Testament, it talks about how we're to treat the poor, God's heart for the poor. You know, the rich who abuse the poor are denounced. If you look at Isaiah 1, 3, 10, Ezekiel 22, Amos 6, 8, Micah 2. Guys, rich people who abuse the poor, who who do not handle their wealth properly, are are not favored by God because that doesn't show that they love God. It talks about God wanting us to, to comfort the poor over giving sacrifices. And so the idea of us coming here and offering a sacrifice of, of worship is hollow if we don't take care of others around us. He offers that, that act of obedience over just, just acts of worship. And in a sense, that is an act of worship. And it's best if we do both. And the first should feel the second and and the second should feel the first. And we should be worshiping God and being generous to reflect what he has done for us. He's he's essentially saying your brothers have everything they need to not end up here in God's word. You know, someone coming back from the dead, you know, a a whole ghost sort of situation, like, don't go there. Like, I don't know if that would have been the the best thing. It's, It's not going to convince those as lovers of money who are not persuadable. And think about this today for us. How many of us, I mean, how much more do we have as Christians today? We have have Moses, we have the prophets, we have the New Testament, we have the revelation of Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the flesh. And when we put our faith in, we have the Holy Spirit helping us, encouraging us. We have God living in us, moving us to help people like Lazarus. Wealth is not a sign of salvation, but how we use it is. So so honor God by helping those in need today. You have everything you need right now to get you there. You may be like, God, show me a sign, you know, before I help the guys. And I'm I'm not even asking you to give to the church. I'm not not even talking about that right now. Yes, we help the needy through the church and, and, and that is the thing, but I'm just talking about just generally being a generous person and helping those in need. I'm not gonna pass around a plate after this. Guys, we have everything we need. We have everything we need right here. You, you don't need a sign. You don't need a miracle for him to move you there. He's, he's, he's shouted it right here to you. He's yelling at you, man, I want you to be like this. I want you to do this. And, and, and here's the reality. Most of you want to be generous people. Like not a lot of us in this room are like, I want to be a miser. You know, hoarding money feels great. Like nobody's ever like, brings me so much joy to, uh, to, to, to not spend money. I mean, most of us want to be generous. And yeah, there are obstacles uh, to, to, to putting to death the rich man in all of us. You know, your consumption rate may be too high. 
Like, like that's what people talk about all the time. We could talk about that, how, you know, you probably spend your money on, on a lot of things that just are dumb, like that are going to, you know, rot and rust and, and fade away that you're not going to care about in an hour, let alone a week, let alone a year, let alone when you're in heaven. And, and, and we kind of say, man, I got, I got, well, I got this, I got cable, I got my car, you know, we got this great 2022 car, we got all these payments, I, I can't give. And so that, we could talk about that. Uh, we could talk about uh, the, the conflict that happens in marriages when it comes to giving. You may not be on the same page as your partner. Most marriages, God designs it like this, one is a saver, one is a spender. And generally, you don't want to put the saver over giving. You put the spender over giving, and then you challenge the saver, and they work together. But you may be like, we're, we're just not on the same page right now, so we're, we're going to wait. We're going to wait. Or you may, you may struggle with the scarcity mentality. The idea of like, I got to save now because I don't have enough now, and I, I can kind of give later. You know, I'll, I'll give when my kids are out of the house, and we don't have all these expenditures, and, you know, my kids are young now, I'm saving, I'm doing this. Guys, I, I mean... We could talk about how that's not going to get any easier. There's never one day where you wake, unless we got like billionaires in this room, there, there's not a day you wake up and you're like, man, today's the day. It is easy to give. You know, it's easy to off. 600 bucks to help that person uh, pay their car pay or rent or gas or my food. It's just really easy to do that. It just doesn't get easier. You, you never arrive. Most of us will never arrive at that moment where where being generous doesn't have some sort of like, it's okay, we're gonna trust you, God, here. We could talk about all those things, but, but here's the reality. All those obstacles, all those mountains become molehills when we truly reflect and understand and own and comprehend how generous our God has been with us. We could talk about budgeting. We could talk about, you know, 10 ways to save so you can give and gross income, net income. And I could get all Dave Ramsey on you. And, uh, but, but unless the gospel is, is, is real in your life, those bounds are going to be pretty big. Those obstacles are going to be pretty big. He has given us everything of eternal value, eternal life purpose, identity. Guys, he, he's thinking lives with us. He lives within us. The whole, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit collectively together. It's a lot easier to talk about that when you, you don't have a church building. Guys, we are the church. Me, you, us. The Holy Spirit resides in us. He's given us security, comfort. Guys, he's given us everything that's worth something. And it came at a great cost for him. It was free to us. We receive it through faith. We essentially say, God, I believe in what you have done for me on the cross. Your son's life covered my sin. He paid the price that I couldn't pay myself. And that price for him was just that, very costly. The sending of his son to 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 come, the incarnation, to become man, to suffer, and to ultimately die on a cross for, for our behalf. May we, with the help of the Holy Spirit, led by, by God's word, fully reflect what God through Christ has done for us by, by helping others. Give locally.
Give globally to missions, to people in need. Give to your, give to your neighbors. Be generous with your neighbors. Even when it's scary to do that, serving the less fortunate. And you're like, we live in Castle Rock. Guys, there are people all along South Street who are struggling financially right now. It's part of the reason we're here is to be able to share the love of Jesus with them. There's plenty of people going to the rich man. <laughs> we want to be in this area where there are a lot of kids on reduced and free lunch, a lot of kids suffering and, and don't get uh, three meals a day and, and are, are living on you know, really bad food and just because it's cheaper and easier to get. Guys, that's, that's why we're here. May we go and share the love of Christ with those people and honoring God by giving away what is already his. Amen.